Welcome to everyone in the Toronto Chinese Gospel Churches. I'm glad to be with you for this weekend and look forward to sharing with you some of the insights that I've gleaned in my own studies, my own experience. I want to ask you a question. Do you find it easier and more comfortable to be with your own family, with your own friends, your own church, your own ethnic community? I think most of us would say, yeah, that's probably true unless you're an extreme extrovert. Uh, many of us struggle with stepping out of our comfort zones. And when we encounter new people, uh, we usually see them as strangers and, and it can be a little intimidating for us. Now in Canada, being very multicultural, we're going to encounter people, and especially you in Toronto, you'll encounter people on a daily basis. You'll meet many different people from many different backgrounds. We share a social construct or a description that we are Canadians, even though we come from different ethnic and ling linguistic backgrounds, uh, we are all the same as Canadians. Now, when we watch the news, we hear daily stories about groups of people being forced out of their homes and homelands. It's so different than what we're accustomed to here in the freedom of Canada. Many are choosing to leave because of threats and conditions. And for many of them, leaving is less dangerous than staying in their own countries. There's hundreds of thousands that are on the move, even as I'm speaking to you, from country to country, within continents, and from continent to continent. All of them are seeking some kind of safety and shelter, work for themselves, and, and even a future for their children. Obviously, their preference would be to stay in their land of birth. But for them, at this moment, that's too dangerous. In a book called Refuge Reimagined, and I have this book here for you just to look at, by Mark and Luke Granville. Uh, Mark teaches at Regent College in Vancouver. In their book, Refuge Reimagined, they say this, We have in mind a wide range of people, anyone forced to flee his or, home, his or her home to seek safety or sustenance elsewhere. Now, we would give a variety of names to these people that would be considered uh, refugees. We would call them sometimes asylum seekers, or they've been called displaced persons, trespassers in a negative way, and even more negative, illegals, as some have tried to uh, declare them to be. And it goes on and on. Uh, Canada has made an official announcement that they are calling these refugees, these people coming to uh, seek help and to see, seek a new home, they're calling them new permanent residents. Now I'm involved with a ministry in Fort Erie called Matthew House, and we have given them in our mission statement and in our practice and in our relationships with them the name newcomers. We want them to feel that they're, they're coming to something new, but they're also coming to something that can become home. Now it's interesting when we read the United Nations uh, human Rights uh, Commissions on Refugees and their statistics, <clears throat> they're advocating there's about 79.5 million people forcibly displaced worldwide at this time. Now stop and think about it. Canada's population is about 37.5 million in the 2019 census. Now, of that 79.5 million, about 47.5 million are what they call internally displaced within their own home, their own countries, their own dwellings, their own homelands. And up to 26 and a third million refugees 
are on the move, seeking somewhere to live, not their homeland. There's about 4.2 million asylum seekers residing right now in 79 countries by the mid-2020. Now, the interesting thing and the sad thing is that almost half, about 40% of this world, world displaced peoples are children. And 68% of these refugees are just from five countries, from Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and of course we know of Myanmar where our brother uh, Laval is, is uh, serving as well. Now Canada, wonderfully, is projecting, and as soon as all the COVID restrictions are lifted, to welcome in about 1.2 million people, refugees, newcomers, in the next three years. These are people that are loved by God. They're the most vulnerable victims. They're at the mercy of usually male dictators, regimes that are self-serving, caring only about power and wealth off the backs of the oppressed, usually their own countrymen. And these dear people are then forced to flee or choose to flee the violence and the war, the starvation in their homelands. Many have died in the journey to freedom, and we've heard stories, tragic stories of this. They're usually bounced from state to state, living in strange lands as outsiders, living in camps, often for months or years, often under appalling conditions, suffering poverty, starvation, and feeling the prejudice of being those outsiders. Now our human nature, which is basically without Christ, self-oriented, and our experiences have given rise to what's called xenophobia. Now this is a compound word with the Greek language and it, the first part of the compound word is xenos, which means stranger. And then of course the word phobos, we get phobia from, which means fear, and it gives us the word, the fear of the stranger, or fear of those we don't know. And fear is usually started and continued by false information, uh, prejudice, ignorance, stereotypes. And too often, we excuse our responsibility and the privilege of welcoming newcomers with false excuses and even our fears. We say this, Oh, they're going to bring their own culture and religious beliefs into our country, and they're going to try to change us. Or we might say, they're going to take away our jobs and our education opportunities from us Canadians. Or we might say, they're going to drain our social welfare system, and they're going to, to do you know, what the jobs that what our Canadians could do and, and just draw on the welfare system. Well, the reality is, is that most newcomers don't do that. It's the opposite that's actually true. They actually contribute as much as those settled here in our own country. Now, Pope Francis said a number of years ago, he said this, there's a growing globalization of indifference where no one in the world feels responsible. And we can use those excuses. But I want to just illustrate this with my own daughter, Elizabeth. She's a school teacher in the Niagara region, and she's been involved for quite a few years in the community efforts to bring well, uh, Southeast Asian families into the Niagara region. And most recently, she was involved with bringing in a Syrian family, not of the Christian faith, but uh, a wonderful family with a few children, and they were there settled in the Niagara region. The interesting thing is, is that they became small business owners of a specialty chocolate business, and they have become an integral part of the community in the Niagara region. 
and I've tasted their chocolates, I've seen the product, and they're a wonderful family. And we can't use the excuse in that they're going to just draw on the welfare system. They're contributing. They're part of our culture. So we must be careful not to create an us and them way of seeing newcomers, or that they're not family. Now, as we take steps to get to know others who are these newcomers, we're going to see that they're very much like ourselves. They have their own families. They have their struggles. There's humorous things in their lives. There's stories and many interesting differences that we can learn. Now, up to this point, I've reminded you of what's happening to many people in our world and how refugees are often seen and treated. But what I want to do now is to show you how God is establishing a new kinship relationship among humanity, not based on biological family or ethnicity, which, but something which goes beyond biological and ethnic connections. And I think this is an important and it's a wonderful truth. Uh, Mark and Luke Granville in their book, which I showed you a few minutes ago, bring this out very strongly. Uh, this book that they have written has been a real eye-opener for myself. It's been recommended by the Refugee Highway Partnership of North America and, of course, by Regent College in Vancouver, where Mark teaches. And it's got a lot of Canadian content to it, which I really appreciate because it's something we can relate to. Now, here's what they state in their book. They state, we pray the book will go some way toward equipping Christians to understand that the biblical model for communities is one in which people will relentlessly and joyfully enfold the vulnerable, the marginalized, and the displaced, and to comprehend how this model can be applied in practice in church communities, national communities, and even the global community. Now, on, on page 9 of their book, they state this, that they say, Our relationship with newcomers, both biblically and culturally, can be like that of kin or kinship, like family. It's more than biological or ethnic, though. And, and so they're, they're redefining and broadening the term of kinship and of family, even. Now, kinship and even family is a social construct, as we understand it in our cultures. Now, speaking to you as, as Chinese background brothers and sisters, and I realize that the use of kinship or family is a descriptive idea in your culture, and it's, it's a very complex concept. It's focusing upon all the ways that you relate as an ethnic and biological family. I've done a little research into some articles and some studies, and uh, there is a, a Chinese author in Yangtze University of China who wrote a paper on this. Uh, their name is Zhu, Zhu Jing Shen, and they've written these words. Kinship terminology refers to the words we use in specific cultures to describe a specific system of familiar relationships. Chinese kinship terminology represents a kind of family-centered social relationship. In Chinese culture, the family is so important that there is a highly elaborate system of kinship terms to describe the relationship between the family members and the relatives. And so as Chinese culture, most would construct relationships based upon bloodline ethnicity, or linguistic connections. And this way of describing it, of course, is important. It's very important, and it's, it's part of our makeup. But it can become static. Uh, it can become closed in. It can become protective and even restrictive. And, and in some cases, and in some cultures, it can become even adversarial. 
Now, there are many other non-biological ways that kinship is used in our world as well. Uh, we use it in relationships like marriage, where two different people, not related by blood, come together. Uh, we, we, we refer to adoption, someone not of blood, adopted into a family. Close friendships, brothers in arms, sisterhoods, religious orders. All of these ties, these kin uh, relationships, can be felt just as strongly and held as dearly as blood ties. Uh, kinship can also be seen in social groups, sports teams, cities, nations, even groupings of nations. We have what's called the European Union, this grouping of different nations, different ethnic groups coming together in a kinship, in a sense, in a family. Uh, the global community is even uh, referred to as the Global Brotherhood. Kofi Annan, the UN Secretary General in 94, referred to that in the Rwandan genocides, calling on the Global Brotherhood to come to the aid of those. Now, Mark Glanville quotes another sociologist in his book, Marshall uh, Salins, in his writing, What Kinship Is and What It Is Not. And, and Salins says this, he concludes that kinship is simply the mutuality of being. Kinfolk, he suggests, are persons who belong to one another. They're parts of one another. They're co-present in each other's lives. They, their lives are joined and interdependent. And of course, you can see from this that you don't have to have blood relation to be this way. Well, we're going to look at another construct that is given to us, and this is a biblical construct of kinship. And again, the Glanvilles go into this, and I've done my own research on this over the years as well. And God has designed and defined for us as humans to relate to each other in this fashion of kinship. It goes, all, it goes beyond all of the blood and biological relationships. It incorporates all people. It helps us to see newcomers and even ourselves in a new way that God sees us and sees them. Now, it starts in creation. Of course, in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, that, those famous verses of God creating us, it says, God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the seas. And God gives them the, the responsibility of being his co-rulers, his icons on the earth, representing himself there. And even the naming process in ancient literature uh, has to do with the fact of ruling over something. And we find then that God, when he created mankind in his image as male, female, as humanity, his original intent for this was to create humanity as his representatives, co-rulers, and these were the commonalities that were shared. These were the shared experiences. So there was a kinship there. But we know in this sense that humanity has failed. We read this in the early chapters of Genesis with rebellion, and then subsequently separation from God, and then separation from each other. We see murder, we see death, destruction, we see arrogance and pride, we see wars and violence. And in Genesis chapter 10, we see that rebellious humanity then attempts to form a new kinship, one that's based upon rebellion against God. Now, subsequently to that, God judges them. He judges humanity. He confuses them with multiple languages, different ways that they could not understand each other. They were divided. They couldn't work together anymore. And then ultimately, they were scattered upon the face of the earth. 
Now, God continues to work out his plan because he's going to reconstruct humanity. He's going to give us a new kinship, which he originally planned in his creation. And so he's going to reconcile humanity back to himself and also to restore us back with each other as kin. Now, this theme of God's restoration to a new kinship is going to be repeated throughout the biblical narrative of God, and it's the core of our being as God's people. We go into Genesis 12 and we see that God chooses one man, Abraham. And it says in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, sever your relationships, even with your blood kin, with your family. God's going to do something new. From your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And then he says further down in verse 3, he says, And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There's a blessing that's going to come. God's going to create a new humanity, a new kinship. And then, of course, he chose from Abraham, his, his offspring, Israel, and the 12 tribes. They became God's chosen people who were going to and were called to demonstrate this new humanity, this new blessing upon all peoples, not just blood-related, and he's going to then throughout history remind his people that they themselves were aliens. They themselves were strangers. And that he chose them above all others. He rescued them and he has welcomed them back. So they're going to be commanded to relate to and treat others who they would call aliens or foreigners, Gentiles, strangers, in the same way that God has created Israel. In Exodus 22, God gives various commands throughout his uh, instructions to his people. And many of them are addressed to the Israelites personally and as a nation, but also to those who have become part of them who are not by blood related to Israel. And he says here, do not mistreat, Exodus 22:21. do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. He reminds them, Exodus 23, 9, do not oppress a foreigner. You know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. Then Leviticus 19, these are the theme verses for our entire weekend together. In Leviticus, it's part of the Day of Atonement, the highest holy day. It's part of the personal conduct commandments that God gives to his people. And he's talking about reaping of harvest land. And he says, do not reap, in Leviticus 9, do not reap the very edges of your field, or gather the gleanings of your field. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. There's to be provision for those who are not of blood with them and with the poor, with the widows, with those people who seem to be always on the outside. Then verse 33 of Leviticus 19 says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them specific command. They are to be treated. He says in verse 34, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your, listen to this, here's the bloodline, as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy, tithes were to be given to the Levites and they were to be dispersed first to the Levites who had no land claims, no, no crops to, to draw from. 
no income. And also it says these tithes were to be distributed to the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows. Then in Deuteronomy 24 it says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. So there's not to be the deprivation, there's not going to be the favor in, in, in justice needs of the bloodline people, of the, of the pure-born Jews. Those who were foreigners were to be treated with justice. Because he says in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 24, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That's why I command you, he says. Now we go further in the history of the Jews after they had gone through many years of, of rebellion and sin and mis, misrepresenting what God wanted them to be to the nations and to the foreigners. Jonah represents those Israelites and their mentality towards others who were not Jews by blood. And he represents them and he forgot God's intention to bless and return all people to himself through Israel. And when he was called to, to bring blessing on the enemies of Israel, he rebelled against it. He was ethnocentric. He was just focused on his own people, on himself. And he rebelled against what God had called him to do. Now, Jonah reveals the danger of limit, limiting kinship to the application of bloodline and ethnic family only, to the exclusion of those on the outside. Now, we go back to Abraham in Genesis 12 and see that he was promised a seed. And that seed concept was all through the promises to God's people. This seed was going to come and fulfill ultimately the res restoration of humanity. Israel failed to do this. But we see now that the seed, the offspring of Abraham, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, succeeds in accomplishing accomplishing this restoration. Now, you know this story. This is not something new that I'm telling you, but I want to remind you in this context of what God is doing and what he wants us to do in relationship to those who are not bloodline related to us, ethnically related to us, strangers, refugees. Through the incarnation as humanity, through the cross, that suffering, death on our behalf, and the resurrection, Jesus now enables humanity to relate again in a new kinship relationship. And that's interesting. God has been working intentionally to bring us back to himself in a new relationship with him, but also with each other. And it's not going to be blood related. Jesus calls his people to live out this new kinship relationship. In Matthew 25, Jesus in one of his exhortations to his listeners said, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. This is Matthew 25, 35 to 40. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, there it is, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you as a stranger, hungry, thirsty, in prison? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers, notice how he calls them, these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. You see, there's a new definition of kinship here, related to Christ, related to him. Of course, we read the story of the complete reversal of this kinship concept, and we see in the Luke 10, 25 to 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus creates a kinship between an outcast 
and a bloodline Jew in his rescue and his preservation of this Jewish man. And it's an amazing story. Now, the apostles and the earlier church lived by this and were exhorted by the apostles uh, to, to live in this fashion as Christ taught us. And in Ephesians 2, 12 to 13 and 14, and then verse 19, Paul says this, Remember that at the time that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, there's that bloodline again, which the Jews held on to so tightly, and he says, And you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, But now in Christ you who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now this is Jew and Gentile, but it's, it's bloodline and, and non-bloodline people. They're coming together as a new humanity out of these two, thus making peace. And then in verse 19, he says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. See how God has, has restored this relationship amongst humanity and given us a whole new way of seeing kinship, all centered around Christ. Hebrews 13, 1 to 3, the author says this, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Now this, this group of, of people that he was writing to were probably mostly Jews, but there was a mixture of God-fearing Gentiles who were hearing all of this. And he says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. Remember those in prison, as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated, as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. And so we see that these commands of Jesus and the apostles call us to a new way of living, not xenophobia, fear of the stranger, but something which is called philoxenia. It's a compound word as well. It's from the Greek, from the, word, the Greek word phileo, which is to love, and the word xenos, which means stranger. And so instead of the fear of the stranger, we're taught, taught to love the stranger, love those who are not the same as us. And this applies to what, <clears throat> excuse me, to what we're talking about. We become the lovers of strangers, the lovers of those that we do not know or we're not familiar with. When they come into our lives, we can treat them as ourselves and as those that God loves. It's the opposite way to the way the world lives. We're to move from hostility and fear and isolation to being hospitable with those we don't know. And we're to move even further to where we can welcome them into our families and even eventually into the family of God. They become part of us. And this is the commonalities. This is the shared human experience. This is the new kinship that we share together. Let me illustrate this for you. My sister, Gail, who lives in Hamilton, is in, has been involved herself in welcoming a young, many people, actually, uh, uh, refugee families in the Hamilton area. But one particular young girl from Africa came into the Hamilton area, her name was Emma, and her young baby, Malachi, came in from Africa as this shy young girl who had no one to, to, know, to know or to care for. And my sister took her in. He took her, she took uh, Emma into her life 
into her personal life. She became like a daughter to my sister, into her immediate extended family gatherings. We had Christmases together. Uh, she was just one of the many children and nieces and nephews that we all shared in my family. Uh, took her into her church family and into the very community of Hamilton. Now, this is exactly what Jesus and his apostles commanded us to do. So instead of refugees, we're going to call them kin relations, family. They're newcomers, but they become kin related to us. Now, Glanville in page 9 says, As kin relations, we partake of each other's sufferings and joys, sharing one another's experiences, even as they take responsibility for and feel the effects of each other's acts. It goes on in page 10 and says, Kinship relations could be produced by shared meals, shared habitation, shared memories, and shared suffering. And they emphasize that the use of kinship as a descriptor for non-blood relationships should not be thought as something that's merely metaphorical or symbolic. Here's what they say. Constructed forms of kinship can be found enjoying equal status or even taking priority, listen to this, over biological forms often enough that they ought to be considered no less real. So they're saying that this new kinship relationship that we have with those who are not blood related can be just as real as a family, as bloodline, as ethnic, ethnical connections, as linguistic connections. So in all of this, what does God require of us? And you're going to have some time to discuss some different issues in the workshops. But I want, first of all, for us to recognize the relationship of kinship with all humanity that we have. We're image bearers of God. All of us. All equal. We all, I also want us to recognize the relationship of a new and full kinship that we have with fellow Jesus followers. We are now part in Christ when we trust Him of God's newly created humanity. We are, as it says in scriptures, created in Christ. We're called children of God. We're called joint heirs with Christ. This is a new kinship and a sharing of all the commonalities of the faith and the life in Christ, the hope and the future. Because of this new kinship with all followers of Jesus, from every tongue and tribe and nation, we can welcome others into and we can live with them as kinship family as well. Now, personally, for each of us, we need to ask ourselves the questions. How can I personally enfold others who are strangers and newcomers as kin or family into my life? Granville asks that on page 15. How about your birth family? Be observant and connect with families that you encounter around you that are vulnerable, that are new to the community, new to the country. Look for and, and work on ways to help this new kin, these new family, if you want to call them, to settle and make a new home. Find ways to share meals, to listen to, with them, to them, to be with them. Their life experiences are important. That's how you get to know them. They've left their homelands. Learn about their homelands. Learn and suffer with them in the losses of their homes, many of them their families, their fears of displacement, but also listen and, and, and dream with them their hopes and their dreams for the future. 
Now, church leaders, what can we do as church leaders and church families? Well, in page 15, again, Granville says, you might ask how we as a church can have our imagination stirred as we contemplate what it might look like for us to be in solidarity with displaced people. Uh, we could also find ways to welcome them into our lives, into our families, our church family, our cities, and our country. We can also, I believe, look for ways to model and advocate as church leaders for our, our church families to be generous, to be welcoming, to love the strangers in our local communities. And, and we could even challenge the prevailing fear and antagonism that is, is in human nature all around us towards refugees, these newcomers. I think as leaders as well, we can find ways to begin to teach and to mentor. Uh, I just again bring you back to this resource, and I'm going to be sending this material to your uh, missions committee so they have all the details of this book, Refuge Reimagined, Biblical Kinship in Global Politics. It's a wonderful study for groups who can look at this issue as churches and as families. I think we can also help others connect with ministries who are already doing this kind of ministry. Uh, one I've referred to, and there's many more, but this one I have connected with in the past. It's called the Refugee Highway Partnership of North America. We can also release our church families as leaders to partner with them. Uh, we don't have to reinvent the ways to try to, to bring people and welcome them into our lives. We can, we can partner with, with these ministries that are already doing it and uh, use their resources. Now, as groups of churches, there's seven I'm speaking to, you can appreciate and advocate with our political leaders to continue to open up more opportunities, to increase the numbers being invited to our homeland. And this, this is where it's a threat to us. All of the excuses and the fears that we might see come of this, these wonderful people will come and contribute. And we want to see more of them come to be free from the, the oppression and the fear that they've been living with. The Glanville brothers advocate in their book that there, there could be 10 times more each nation setting goals. And I think that's an important thing. Now, older generations... Encourage the younger generations in your biological families, in your church families, who are living in both worlds, to continue to welcome newcomers into their lives and your lives, into your churches. Bless them. Don't discourage them. Allow them the freedom of time for new kinship relationships. Please, don't lay upon them, these younger generations, living in both worlds, meeting these people, living with them, being exposed in so many ways to so many different kinds of people. Don't lay upon them the demands to always be with you. Now, I know it's important to honor parents and honor family, but we've also now got a new kinship, a bigger family. And that's so important as well. It's the family that God wants us to invite people into. Don't have them just look after you. Don't have them just only provide for you the older generations. You. Be hospitable yourselves. Welcome people. Invite them into your lives, into your families. Yes, there may be some communication difficulties. There's multiple languages and there's, there's the unknowns of, of getting to know someone else. But try to communicate with them, even with a smile. Something that a smile does is amazing. I greet 
all the workers in our community that I encounter who are from Mexico working on the farms around my home, in all the nurseries and the farms, I greet them. I've learned some Spanish and I greet them. And when I say, uh, welcome to them and how are you today and, and, or this afternoon or this evening and whatever terms I use, they just light up and they respond. It's amazing. And that's all I do. And I'm getting to know some of them as I encounter them walking here and there. And so do this. Handshakes, greeting them in your own language, attempting to do this. Also, pray for those in your family, in churches, who have the opportunity to welcome others. This is an amazing thing. Now, I've given you some information. I've given you some ideas. I've put some seed thoughts, hopefully planted in your thoughts and in your minds, in your churches, in your leadership. And may God bless you as you look out beyond yourselves, as you seek to be those who are welcoming to those who are newcomers, those who others want to push away. There's many who are not even in churches who are doing this. And in a sense, many of them put us to shame. So let's make a commitment to doing whatever God wants us to do as individuals, as biological families, um, as churches and leaders, to be a welcoming community and seek out those who are coming to our land, Canada, this land of freedom and opportunity, to just be welcomed and to feel like this is now their new home and we are now their new family, expressing to them the love of Jesus Christ. God bless you. And uh, may your uh, workshops later on today just be so fruitful. Blessings. Thanks a lot.